listening to the Northside Christian Church Sermon Podcast. These teachings are recorded at our weekly Sunday morning gatherings in Springfield, Missouri. For more about our church, service times, and how to connect, visit northsidechristianchurch.net. Well, Northside, I want to begin with a question today I'd like for you to consider, ponder on this a little bit. But the question is this, what do you require before you trust someone enough to receive their advice? Like at a bare minimum, what do you want to see before you are going to listen to someone, heed their advice, follow what they say, be persuaded by what they're talking about? Like at a bare minimum, what do you want to see from someone before you're going to do that? What would it take? Aristotle famously said there are three things that are critical for a person to do in order for someone to want to follow your advice or to be persuaded to do what you are wanting them to do. And here's what those are. First one was this. He said, logos. It's got to make good sense. Like there's got to be an argument that is worth listening to. It makes sense. That's logos. So at the basic level, there's, it's got to make sense what someone is saying to you. Number two, he said this was pathos. Pathos has to do with emotion, values. It has to do with, you know, is, is it compelling? Like, are you even giving a compelling arm, argument? Are, people have values. Are you connecting to that and giving a compelling, compassionate, passionate speech about this content that's worth listening to? Because someone who's boring, no one wants to listen to that. So is it compelling? That's pathos. The third thing is ethos. Ethos has to do with credibility. It has to do with your, your character. Like, like do you, does the person who's presenting to you actually believe this? Do they practice what they preach? Do they actually do this? Or are they just in it to make a name for themselves and to make money for themselves? Or do they actually reveal through their actions in their life, they believe it and they're all in? Do they have the character and credibility behind what they say? Those are the three things that Aristotle said are really a minimum requirement for someone to follow your advice. Logos, it makes good sense. Pathos, it's, it's compelling and, and emotional. Ethos, has to do with the character integrity behind it. And if someone lacked the ethos, Aristotle said in the ancient world, people wouldn't give it the time of day. They didn't want to listen. Like if your character and your integrity is not there, the credibility of what you say, they don't want to listen to it. Well, I'll tell you, the same is true now. Unless there's credibility there, we're not going to listen to it. It's that important. It's got to make sense. You've got to believe in it. And you have to have the credibility and the character to stand behind it. So when we look at our text today from Colossians chapter 1, if you've got a Bible or a device, that's where we're going to spend some time. Open up to that today. This text from Colossians 1 is written by the Apostle Paul. I would like to put Paul to Aristotle's test. I think it'd be interesting for us to look at this text and ask the question, does Paul have the logos? Does he have the pathos? Does he have the ethos that is required to give a compelling argument that someone would want to follow? Like, are are we really going to believe in what he says? Is this worth us listening to? Is this worth our time? And I'd like for us to put it to the test. Because I know for most all of us in the room today, we for many of us, not all, but for many of us, we already believe the Word of God to be inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is God's Word to us. It carries a weight and authority that speaks to our hearts. So it already has that for us in many ways. But I would like for us for a moment just to look at Paul, who's writing this in Colossians 1, 
and say, is he someone that can be believed? Is he someone that we ought to follow? Is he somebody that we ought to heed what he says? Does Paul make good sense? Logos. Is his argument sound? Does he deliver it in a compelling fashion? Pathos. And does his life show that he believes it? That he lives it? Does he have the character and the integrity to speak to this? Now, not every text that we open up in our Bible is going to have all three of those all present, you know, in that text. But I would propose that as we read Colossians 1, verse 24 through chapter 2, verse 4, I believe this text has all three. We're going to see that we should listen to what Paul has to say today for these reasons. And so what I'd like to do for a moment as we uh, read this text together, I'd like for you just to stand to your feet. We're going to, I'm going to be reading from Colossians chapter 1, 24 through chapter 2, verse 5. I want us just to, in this moment, hear from God what he has to say to us from his word. And here's what Paul writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit. He says, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I've become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but it's now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart, united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Heavenly Father, we know that your word is living and active. It is sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It goes to the innermost place of our heart. It speaks conviction over us. It brings comfort to us. Your word is powerful and mighty. And Lord, I just pray that your word would speak to us now. Lord, I pray that we not only would hear it today, But Holy Spirit, would you open our hearts right now so that we would leave prepared to do it today. We pray, Lord, that your word would come alive as we read together. That, Lord, we would understand it and know it and believe it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people say, Amen. Well, you may be seated. And as I look at the three (laughs) tests of Aristotle, the one I want to talk about first is this, ethos. And the reason I want to talk about this is because that has to do with character, credibility. Should you believe what he says? And this one probably speaks the loudest in this text. It's at the center of the text, in fact. Paul's life demonstrates, it shows that he's a man of sincerity. He lives it out. He's a man of credibility. You can believe it. One of the ways that Paul shows this is in chapter 1, verse 29. He says that that to this he... Um, strenuously 
contends. He strenuously contends. That can also be translated, he struggles, he labors unto exhaustion. It has that idea of an athlete who's fighting and struggling to the point of utter weariness and exhaustion. Think of boxers when they get to the point where they're still hitting each other, but it's not having much effect because they're so worn out. A UFC fighter who, who spins it all and there's just hardly anything else left to give. This is what he's doing. He is laboring, struggling. He is strenuously contending for this good news of Jesus. Paul is doing this. He's fighting for this. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 1, he even says he's doing it for people he's not even met yet. He goes, you don't know me. I don't even know you yet. Not in person. We haven't met. And yet he's doing it for them so that they might know Christ. They might know the mystery that is in Jesus, Christ in them, that they may know that. I mean, you can believe what this guy says. His struggle is at the center of the text. Literally, it's at the center of the text. Michael DeFazio in his book, More Jesus, talks about how this poem that's written by Paul, verse 24 of chapter 1 to chapter 4 of chapter 2, it is chiastic in structure. It's a chiasm, which is like a sideways V when you look at this poetic approach to, to Scripture. And so when Michael DeFazio talks about this, he gives an example. So this is his example. This is a poem he's using as an example that he's writing about his wife. And so all the ladies are just going to be like, oh, it's pretty sweet. So he says, my love, in my eyes you have no equal. That's line number one. Number two, those who know you call me lucky. Look at the middle. You are godly, beautiful, and strong. How fitting it is when others praise you. No other woman compares with you. So if you notice line number one and the last line as well, they go together. My love, in my eyes you have no equal. The last line, no other woman compares with you. They, they go together. Line number two fits with the next to the last line. Those who know you call me lucky. How fitting it is when others praise you. Just the line of thought, the reasoning lines up. But what is in the middle? What's at the center of this chiastic structure? It's the one that is most important. It's the main emphasis. It's at the center of it because it's the center point, which is this. You're godly. You're beautiful. You're strong. Paul is doing the same thing in Colossians. In fact, we're going to look at it right now. It's a little bit longer, so sometimes it's a little bit harder to see that. But we see in verse 24, Paul begins by saying that Paul rejoices in suffering for them. He begins with rejoicing. That's how he starts this poem. He rejoices in suffering for them. And then in the next few verses, Paul reveals the mystery and its riches and its wisdom. And then he goes into this section where it reveals Paul's hard work and his struggles, how he's strenuously contending and laboring and struggling for them. And then Paul clarifies the mystery and its treasures of wisdom. And he talks about that. And then he concludes with this, Paul rejoices in their maturity, their discipline, and their progress, standing firm in the faith. And if you look at that, the first and the last, he rejoices in their suffering, he rejoices in their maturity, and, and that they're standing firm. Paul, on the second line, he reveals the mystery and its riches with wisdom. And in the next last line, he clarifies the mystery and its treasures and its wisdom. But what is in the middle? What is at the center of it all? What gets the most attention that is the greatest emphasis in this. It's his labor. It's his struggle. It's his toil. It's his suffering. That's what is, what is at the center of it all. It means that because of that, not only is he strenuously struggling, but he's exhausting himself to this end. 
you can trust what he's going to say because he is all in on this. In fact, Paul is making three points here. First of all, his labor and sufferings are a continuation of the sufferings Christ Jesus suffered to save us. So what Paul is saying is, I'm willing to suffer for this because I want you to know how Jesus suffered to save you. He wants them to know his salvation. He's willing to do this. Paul even makes the comment that he is filling up that which was lacking in Christ's afflictions. And when he says that, he doesn't mean that Jesus didn't suffer enough at the cross or that somehow Jesus didn't suffer enough for our salvation. That's not what he means at all. He's not talking about suffering in salvation. He means suffering for service. Paul's saying, I am suffering in service what is lacking in our service of Christ since he was here so that everyone can know that he suffered to save us. He's talking about the suffering unto service that comes for people who are following Jesus. And Paul's saying, I'm willing to do it. I'm willing to suffer all the way to the end. In fact, Paul is so convinced of what he's teaching that he'll gladly give his life so that more people might come to see what he's saying about Jesus is true. Not only is he willing to live for Jesus, he's willing to die for Jesus. And he will die for Jesus. But he's willing to do it because he wants people to know it's true. In other words, this guy's got ethos. He's got character and credibility. We need to be the kind of people that aren't just willing to live for him. We're the kind of people that are willing to die for him. And then Paul's revealing this. Number three, he isn't in this for himself. So you can at least trust that he's sincere. He's not trying to make a name for himself. He's not trying to gain fame or money or any of this stuff. Like he is suffering for this. He's happy to hurt. He's happy to experience pain if it means he can be a servant for others, if it means he can help make the name of Jesus famous, if it means that. That's how much Jesus means to him, and that's how much people he didn't even meet yet meant to him, which includes you. He's willing to, to suffer for you. He's willing to die for you that you would know Jesus. This is in the heart of Paul because it's in the heart of Jesus. Paul meant every word that he writes. When he writes Colossians to the people of Colossae, he's writing about probably six years or approximately after he's writing to the people of Corinth. And to the people of Corinth, he's making this same argument about what he's willing to go through. In fact, he says in 2 Corinthians 11, he says, I've worked much harder. I've been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled, and I've often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst, and I've often gone without food. I've been cold and naked besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches who is, who is weak and I do not feel weak, who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Then God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. Like if you want to know if a guy's lying or not, let's look at his ethos. Let's look at his life. Because Paul not only was willing to live for Jesus, he was willing to die for Jesus. In the year AD 68, according to Eusebius, Paul was in a Roman prison. 
He was in the filth of a room that wasn't even tall enough for him to stand in. And from there, according to the church historian Eusebius, he was marched to the center of Rome. And there in the center of Rome, he was executed by some unnamed Roman soldier who chopped off his head. We don't know that guy's name, but we know Paul's name. And the world lost one of its greatest, finest men. And it is men like Paul and the apostles that were like Paul. They were not showboats. They were not opportunists. They were not liars. They were not crooks. Our faith, as Michael DeFazio says in his book, More Jesus, our faith is built on the backs of leaders worth trusting, of people you can listen to what they say and understand it and believe it because of what they went through. That suffering for Christ is a sign that your faith is genuine, that your message is true and can be believed. That's why Paul would write in Philippians, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the Lord. Like, do that with your lives. Why? He says this in verses 28 and 29. Without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved. And that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe Him, but also to suffer for Him. And so Paul is revealing to them that through suffering and through the hardship, God is going to use it. He's going to advance the kingdom and advance the cause. And when we see people struggling and contending and laboring and suffering for what they believe in, we grow admiration, we grow respect. It, it gains credibility. We grow admiration for them that, that even we ought to suffer for Christ so that others will see it and believe. I was reading from some of the workers that we have in North Africa, and they were talking about this man. They gave him the name Albert, who had come to faith in Christ through media years ago. And he was a growing believer, a growing disciple, who wasn't just following Jesus, he was helping others follow Jesus. Like he, he was multiplying disciples and having a huge impact, but his family was adamantly opposed to his Christian faith. His dad took him to court twice. His own father took him to court twice because of his son's beliefs, trying to squelch them. His son was thrown into prison because of it. For five days, he was in prison where he was beaten by fellow prisoners who did not share his Christian faith. And of course, the police just turned an eye from him there in that country because they were fine with him being persecuted for his beliefs, which they deemed completely wrong and false. He was hurt physically, his jaw, his teeth, required work. In fact, he went to the dentist. And the word that I got was that the, the dentist who did the work for him was so overwhelmed and overcome by his story and his attitude and his approach to it all that it was opening doors and opportunities even for a dentist who was doing the work to receive the gospel and to hear the good news of Jesus as with others, that it was through suffering that more doors were opened where he as a witness who stood firm for Christ, gained credibility in their eyes and the message then they wanted to hear what he had to say. It is through suffering that Albert's ethos was on full display. 
And through that, many others are going to come to faith in Jesus as well. And look, I understand when we begin to look at Paul's life, when we begin to think about suffering and laboring and struggle, like we don't want any of that. We don't want to be a part of that. We don't, we're not inviting it into our lives. We're not asking for, the, for that. In fact, some of us are even concerned or scared. Would we be able to stand in a moment of testing or trial or suffering? And, and we begin to worry about that. But here's the good news for that. You're not going to do it in the strength that you have. It's not going to come from within. Like this isn't going to be you mounting up whatever strength you need to face this suffering. It's, it's, that strength is not going to come from within. It's going to come from someone else. Colossians 1, 29, here's how Paul said it. I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Even for Paul, for him, the power in his life was not coming from within. It was coming from without. It was coming from Christ in him. Not only is Christ with you, but Christ will empower you. He's with you in these moments and he will empower you in those moments. Now, how do you know Christ is with you? Like, how do you know that? How do you know he's in you, in your suffering? Well, just think back to like Acts 9, whenever Saul, before he became Paul, Saul was a persecutor of Christians. And Saul was going from house to house and dragging men and women and children and separating them and dragging them out and persecuting them. And he was killing believers because of their faith. He believed he was doing the right thing. He's on the road to Damascus when God encounters him in a bright light. And Jesus is the one speaking to Saul in that moment. And according to the text, it says, he says to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute? And those of you who know the text, does he say them? Why do you persecute them? No, he doesn't. He says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute? What's he say? Me. Why do you persecute me? The suffering of God's people The persecution that was coming against them was coming against Jesus. He was feeling, experiencing the persecution, the suffering that they were going through because he was with them and he was in them. He was feeling what they felt. He was going through what they were going through. So Christ is with you, but he's not just with you. He will empower you. The strength you have to face life's greatest struggles, it's not a strength that comes from within. It's one that comes from above So don't try to do it in your own strength. You don't have what it takes. Think, I have all the energy from Christ powerfully working in me. And Jesus may not take away the struggle or the suffering or the pain, but he is with you in it, and he will give you the capacity to endure it. He will give you the strength that's needed for that moment. So you suffer with the strength that he provides, knowing you don't have it in and of yourself. You can't manufacture that. You can't do it. Only he can give it. Tim Brown tells the story about a, a dear friend of his, a young man named Tim Vanderveen. Tim Vanderveen was a young man from Spring Lake, Michigan, and he was just this handsome guy. He was tall, broad-shouldered, curly hair, a handsome guy who was smart and doing great things, and he had graduated from high school. He had gone on to go to Hope College. This is in the early 90s. That gives you a little bit of time frame of when this was going on. He then went to work for Prince Corporation, which became Johnson Controls. And he just was moving up the ladder, the corporate ladder of success. He was thriving. He was doing great. Everything was going great in his life. Until that day when, while his parents were out of the country and he was just feeling absolutely horrible. So bad, in fact, this strong, uh, scrappy young man 
checked himself into the hospital because he just felt horrible. Maybe it was a horrible flu or something else. He didn't know what it was, but it wasn't that. It was leukemia. And that day began for him a three-year arduous battle with leukemia, with that cancer that just slowly began attacking his body. And he began to see his strength ebb away until he was nothing. And Tim Brown, they're both named Tim. Tim Brown tells the story of going to the hospital there to see him one day. And the day he walked in to see him there in the hospital room, he saw Tim lying in the bed. He saw his mom sitting in the corner and she had tears in her eyes and was emotional. It was a rough day, not going well. And Tim was not doing well as he laid in the bed. And Tim Brown saw he had no strength, no energy. He was laying on his side. The pillow was between his skinny legs. The curly hair was curly no longer. The broad shoulders were broad no longer. And as he walked up to the bed and he was laying there on his side, Tim said to look him in the eyes, I just had to kneel down. So I kneeled down at his bed and he said, I was just looking eyeball to eyeball to Tim. And he said, I just said, hi, Tim. And he said, hi, Tim. So we just sat there looking at each other for a few moments. He goes, it turned into kind of some awkward moments because Tim Brown said, even after 20 years of ministry, you just kind of kneel there looking, not even knowing in that moment what to say. But it was... Tim, lying in the bed, who broke the silence, and he said to him, he said, I, I've learned something. And Tim Brown said, when someone is in the process of dying and they've learned something, you want to hear what it is. And he just said, buddy, tell me, what, what have you learned? And he said, I, I've learned that life is not like a VCR. That tells you his age a little bit. I'm glad I'm mentioning this story in this service because in any of our other rooms, they may not know what we're talking about. But life is not like a VCR. Of course, Tim Brown didn't know what he meant by that. And he's like, what do you mean? He said, life is not like a VCR. You can't fast forward through the bad parts. He goes, but I've learned that Jesus Christ is in every frame. And right now that's just enough. You can't fast forward through the bad parts. But Jesus Christ is in every frame. And for right now, that's, that's just enough. And so Tim Brown would say it was enough when he toddled to first grade that Jesus Christ would be in that frame. And it was enough when he turned his tassel toward an uncertain future at Hope College because Jesus Christ was in that frame. And it was just enough when he went to a hospital three years earlier, not knowing what was going on, Jesus was in that frame. And he says, and Jesus was there in that frame when he breathed his last and he was there when he breathed his first in the kingdom of God. Jesus is in every frame. It's the power of Christ that gives you ethos, credibility, integrity for what you believe, to live it out, to do it. The thing that our world wants to use against God? How can a good God allow suffering in this world and twist that against Him as an argument against Him? God uses to reveal His truth. We were talking about this in, back in 
Uh, Corey Scott, our worship minister, was emailing the worship team in preparation for this day. And here's what he said. He said, it often seems as though suffering in the world is the great apologetic against Christianity. Atheists have used this hurting world as faith's Achilles heel. But is it possible that suffering in our world is also the best lens by which we see the heart of a compassionate Heavenly Father? When you only have you, opposition, and God, you learn that you're not enough, but God is. When we're hurting, we often ask, why? Why, God? Why have you done this? What have you done? Who's to blame? But instead of asking why, what if we just asked, to what end? To what purpose? What could come of this? What could God make of this? Instead of asking, what is God doing to me? God, what are you doing in me? God, how, how do you want to use this? This is the message of ethos. It's our character and our credibility in moments of hardship and suffering. Did Paul pass that test? Did Paul pass that test? Absolutely he passes that test. It's at the center point of this text. It's the one that probably stands apart above everything else. But it's not the only thing. Because next we have to ask the question, well, what about pathos? What about this? Is, is, is it compelling? Like, is he looking at his people and delivering a, a compelling argument with passion? It's like, absolutely. In verse 28, he's proclaiming, admonishing, teaching with all wisdom. He's warning them. Don't be deceived by fine-sounding arguments. He even tells them his goal, which is to encourage them. Man, people need encouragement. Is that not what plagues our culture is discouragement? Is that not what plagues us is discouragement that gets us down? He's encouraging them. He's admonishing them. He's proclaiming to them. He's even admiring them for how disciplined they are and and what he's going to find as they stand firm in the faith. Man, that's something we struggle with. We, We don't really like discipline. We're in a culture that is so undisciplined, and yet we need to grow in discipline. Many of us, we're we're quick to accept God's grace. We're just not very quick to accept his discipline. And we want the fruit of discipline without actually having to change and go through it. We don't want to have to go through the growing process that discipline requires. We don't don't want that. Yet discipline and discipleship come from the same root word. It's the same root word. They're closely related. God uses discipline in our lives as one of the primary ways to disciple us to become more and more like Jesus. So when we go through the struggles, when we have to labor and contend, God can use that to grow us, to make us more like Christ. And Paul, who's already experienced that, comes onto this scene and he's just compelled to share it with people with passion, with discipline, admonishing, teaching, proclaiming. I mean, the dude is compelling. He's so passionate for the things that God's heart is passionate about. And I think when it comes to these three tests that we're talking about, we need to kind of take some time and just even for our own lives, say, if someone were to encounter me, is there ethos? Is there pathos? Is, is this something in my own life that is present? And we need to reflect on this a little bit. Do I give any reason for someone to believe with any credibility what I'm about to say? And this, these are the kinds of things we have to to let steep a little bit. Maybe you're a tea drinker. You've got to let it steep. Maybe you're a redneck. You need it to marinate. That's what rednecks have to do. Let it marinate. 
Maybe you're in the mood for some comfort food, so it needs to stew a little. Or maybe you need cleansing, so let it soak in for a while. We just need to say, are these things present in my life like they are in the Apostle Paul's? Ethos. Ethos, pathos. How about this one? Logos. This was the third requirement that Aristotle talked about. It's, it's got to make sense. It's, it's the text of the argument. Is Paul making a good argument here? He says in verse 25, chapter 1, he says I, he wants to present the Word of God in its fullness. To make known God's mystery, which is a mystery no longer. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the mystery that for ages was kept that even us, even us Gentiles, can have Christ in us, the hope of glory. It's, it's a mystery no longer. He's revealing it. Christ is the Logos. He's the Word. He's truth. He's wisdom. He's knowledge. In verse 3, he says, In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul is presenting both in this moment. Knowledge is the apprehension of truth. Wisdom is the application of truth. You need both in your life. The apprehension of truth and the application of truth. Knowledge is prudent judgment, whereas wisdom is prudent action. We need to believe it and act on it, apply it in our lives. Even if it may be foolishness to the world, we know it's the wisdom of God and the power by, what we, by which we receive His righteousness. Paul highlights Jesus. He lifts Jesus up and he says, in Christ, the overall mystery is unveiled. It's not something currently unknown. He's talking about something that's known now. It's Jesus, hope in you. It's all about Jesus. Everything you need for life and for godliness can be found right here in Christ. Everything. How should we live? Where do you go for guidance? To whom do you turn? What do you need? It's Jesus. Like he's the answer to it all. And even today, people are trying to somehow lead you astray to think there's something other than Jesus or more than Jesus that you need in your life. And Paul says, do not fall for those fine-sounding arguments. Don't find, fall for those at all. Don't be deceived when people say those kinds of things. You need to cling to the Logos. You need to cling to Jesus, to these fine-sounding arguments that He is everything. He is who He says He is. The mystery has been revealed in Jesus. We need to believe that. And when you look at this, you see Paul's Logos is sound. His argument is real. It's credible. Paul's pathos is evident. He gives this compelling, passionate plea. His ethos is real. I mean, you can see how he lived his life. He was willing not only to live for this stuff, but to die for this stuff. He was willing to bleed for this stuff. And when I look at Paul and the example he sets, which is turn the world upside down because of it, I have to then look at myself and say, if I'm put to the test, if I apply the same things that I see to Paul, to me, I have to start asking, are all these things present in my life? Is my logos sound? Is the text of my argument rooted in God's Word? The pathos, is it evident? Am I compelled for the things that compel God's heart? Am I moved to action with passion and want to share it clearly because this is the Father's heart for a lost people? And is there ethos in my life? Is there credibility in how I live? Am I willing to suffer and struggle and contend for the gospel to actually go through hard stuff to make sure that others get this good news of Jesus because our world desperately needs it? 
every second. Every second. Even in a country like India right now, in that country population, these are people who are dying who do not know Jesus. Am I compelled at all by the things that move the heart of God? Am I willing to contend and struggle and labor so that others can know Him? Will we, in the strength that Christ provides, be someone like Paul or like Albert, where we practice what we preach and we stand firm in the faith, even in the face of opposition, even if we feel all alone? Will we not shy away? But be disciplined and stand firm. Paul struggled. He struggled for us. He contended for us. Why would he do this? Because Christ did it for him. Because Christ suffered for him. And he was now filling up the afflictions of Christ through his service. What Christ isn't suffering on this earth right now, Paul is doing it and now we can do it and Christ is with us. He's experiencing this with us. He's empowering us so that now we can do it for others. We can serve others. Even those we do not yet know, we labor praying that their faith will be as firm and as disciplined as the believers in Colossae, that our faith will be as firm and, and strong as those believers in Colossae. And so we start looking at what could we do so that our faith can be credible. You know, I know several months ago we were uh, talking to you about that story when Alan Tiger was preaching on compassion and action. And Austin Owens was sitting out here thinking about what that could look like if he actually lived that out and did that. And he came up with this idea and he, he uh, with his life group, their small group, they got together and, and they, they got 50 homes in, the, in a Springfield neighborhood and they sent them postcards letting them know that they were coming to their neighborhood on a certain Saturday to serve them and, and help them and clean up yard or haul stuff off or do work, whatever they needed. They were there to serve and they would be able to recognize them by their shirts that they were wearing. Say, no, that they're part of this group that's coming and we can help and serve you and pray with you or for you. You know, we're here to whatever for like these four or five hours there on that Saturday. And they went and did that and they were hauling stuff to the dump. Uh, one lady got her heating element, her stove fixed. I mean, just various things were happening in that neighborhood. They were praying with a gal who was sick. They prayed for another gal who was going in for surgery. And they just began to engage people that they did not know. Just began to labor and contend in that moment for them so that they would have an opportunity just to show the love of Jesus, that the message is believable. It's, it's, it's credible. And that's something we're, we've been inviting any life groups who want to be a part of this to, to join this. I know some of you are going to do it this fall. Maybe some are in the spring. We've got some weather coming up where you could do this and and experience it. And simply with, as your group sends an email to austin.owens at hotmail.com, austin.owens at hotmail.com. You can go back and list this if you need that or we can send it to you. But, but he's got, already got postcards for you. He's already got t-shirts printed and made for your group so that you can uh, wear them and go out and do this. He, he already has a section of the city broken up. He can give you those 50 homes and tell you where to go and, and help you process what to do. And, and he can help facilitate this for you. And we just want you to know that there's an opportunity for you to do that this fall, to go so we can go into our own community, so we can show the love of Jesus to people. We can make inroads there. We can meet people that we pray with. We can ask God to give us opportunities to share the gospel and to help the lost know him. And so these are the kinds of opportunities we're praying for God to give us, that we would be those kinds of people 
that meet that test, that someone would want to listen or hear what we have to say because all three of these are present in our life. And I just want to say today before we sing, if today you need to begin a relationship with Jesus or you want to become a member of this church and partner with us in ministry with what God's doing, or maybe you just want to pray with someone today. I first want you to know that our prayer team is going to be coming to the sides of the room and down to the front here because they're available and ready to pray with you and for you today. They've already been doing it and they'd love to do that some more. During that song, I'm going to be stepping out here to decision point between these double doors. I would love to meet and talk and pray with you there with whatever the Holy Spirit is leading you to do, to respond. I also just want you to know today as you leave, our offering boxes are at the back of the room and you can give generously to the Lord or to the information that you saw earlier online as you give online here at northsidechristianchurch.net. We want this to be a moment where we just respond to what God would have us to do in response to his words. I want you just to take a moment right now Just close your eyes and just reflect on what God would have you to do. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us the pathos, the legos, the ethos of Paul, that we would have that in our own life. Lord, I pray that we would be people of character and integrity or committed to your word. That does not mean perfection. It means people that are seeking Jesus. Lord, I want to pray that you would use us to be your instrument in this world, your Voice, I pray for your strength to carry us through whatever we're going through. We pray for strength for the struggle. Jesus, I pray that you just would make it evident to our hearts that not only are you with us, but you're empowering us in the strength that you give. And Lord, I want to pray that we would help the mystery of Jesus be known in this world. That Jesus, you are in us and you're the hope of glory. And Lord, we thank you that you have saved us and redeemed us. Lord, we thank you for the example that Paul set for us that we would have that kind of heart as he followed in the footsteps of Jesus. May we do that as well. And Lord, I just pray that we would respond to what you would have us to do today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us this morning, Northside. Before you go, make sure you check in and let us know you were here. Text the word CHECK to 417-233-1200. If you want to respond to today's service, you can do that online through Decision Point. If you want to know more about baptism or becoming a member, you can request more info at northsidechristianchurch.net slash decision. This is also the place to find out about our life groups, find out what sort of service opportunities there are, or if you just need to get in touch with a minister. And if you're online, you probably use social media too. Make sure you're following along with Northside on our Facebook page, Instagram account, YouTube channel, or Twitter. We are glad that you chose to join us this morning. As we head out for the week, let's make sure we take the love of God with us. Take good care of each other, Northside.